0: Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. I'm speaking to an American icon today, Alan Alda. Now in his eighth decade, he pursues life with a kind of boundless curiosity and passion that can inspire us all. America first fell in love with Alda as Hawkeye Pierce in the legendary show MASH, which ran for 11 seasons and on which he also wrote and directed. Alda received a staggering 25 Emmy nominations, winning five times. For many, that scale of success could have been the whole story but Alda's career continued. He's a three-time Tony Award nominee, an Oscar nominee for his performance in Martin Scorsese's The Aviator, and he has six Golden Globes to his name. But beyond the stage and screen, Alda is a devoted husband and father. He's been equally busy with extensive work in charity, writing his memoirs, and devoting himself to the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. He also has his own podcast, Clear and Vivid, for which he's spoken to everyone from Yo-Yo Ma to a hostage negotiator for the FBI. In this conversation, we talk about his new film, Marriage Story, in which he delivers a superb performance as a divorce lawyer, his experience living and working with Parkinson's, and his advice for this generation. It's my privilege to bring you Alan Alda. Hello, everybody. I've got Alan Alda on Present Company today—an absolute privilege. You can't be alive and not have seen Alan Alda in something. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> You've been at it since you were twenty, or even younger.
1: Younger. I, I was an, an understudy to the actor Don Murray when I was nineteen on Broadway. Wow. But I, but I was an apprentice when I was sixteen. I got paid $25 a week to be an apprentice, which is pretty good. That's
0: better than some interns get paid now, right?
1: (laughs) And I not only made the scenery, they gave me leading parts to play, so I was getting great experience. But the guy I worked for, the producer of the summer stock company, his theory of acting was a little different from what I later developed. His theory of acting was shout and duck.
0: (laughs) Uh, and also last year you started your own podcast clear and vivid tell clear me about clear and
1: vivid i love my podcast i have the best time and i love it that other people love it it makes me very happy it's it, it's all about relating and communicating with other people and i talk to people who you wouldn't expect to have really touching and and interesting and valuable stories about relating and communicating. Our first show is with Sarah Silverman, mm-hmm. who had this extraordinary experience where somebody tweeted to her a one-word insult, the worst thing you can call a woman. Mm-hmm. And instead of blocking him or going into a tirade, she looked up his profile and found out he was in pain with, with, with back pain. And she wrote him back and said, my back hurts really badly too. I know what it's like. Why don't you try to speak from a place of love though? And he wrote back and said, I can't, I have no love left in me. That was ripped out of me by a man who abused me when I was a child. Then she found a place where he could get therapy for free. He took the therapy, he changed his life, and now they communicate regularly as friends. Wow. in messages. Isn't that an amazing story? Yeah, I
0: have not heard that. That is an amazing story.
1: And and story after story, like that. we talked to, I, I talked to, Famous people and people you might not have heard of, but they all have interesting stories. And I mean, for instance, a guy called, uh, his last name is Voss, and he used to be the chief hostage negotiator for the FBI, big international hostage cases. And he got the hostages released not by arguing with the people, but by stating for them what their problem was, what their, what their complaint was. And he, he, he didn't agree with them. Mm-hmm. Didn't argue with them; it was just a question of letting them know that they were heard. Mm-hmm. And he tr- he tried this wonderful technique. He never he never wanted them to say "you're right." He wanted them to say "that's right," because mm-hmm. "that's right" gave them the power to not only disagree, gave them the power to give up the hostage. Right. And he told me this <laughs> amazing thing. That the techniques he used to get hostages released were very useful in a marriage.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of marriages, you've been married for I don't know sixty. What is it? Sixty-two years?
1: Sixty-two years. Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, you've written about very successfully relationships and movies and couples. You've Four Seasons comes to mind. Uh,
1: you've. Yeah, I've been thinking about this question for a long time. It seems I didn't realize it. Yeah. And this movie is a perfect example. Right,
0: of a Marriage Story. Right, Marriage
1: Story, because. In a marriage, which almost always starts because the two people are in love, they have to learn to communicate well and to relate to each other well for the marriage to last. And when that breaks down and leads to a divorce, they find this amazing other thing that they have to contend with, which is that they have to communicate even better in a divorce than they did in the marriage. hmm Otherwise, they're going to have a divorce that shatters their lives. Mm-hmm. And what I love about this movie is that Noah Baumbach, who who wrote the script and directed the movie and has a history of a number of really great movies, what he was able to do in this story was tell the story of a marriage that does go through a divorce and yet is a love story because they do finally learn to communicate and to Mm -hmm. relate to each other better. Mm -hmm. Even though they're divorced, they they find other lives, but they have a child between them, and it's of the utmost importance for them to cooperate really well and not get in each other's way. So there's this ironic thing in the movie that even though, according to the old-fashioned Hollywood standards, it doesn't end with a happy ending, it does end with a satisfying ending, for me, Mm -hmm. because... They make the adjustment to live in a difficult, uncertain world.
0: Now, how did Noah approach you? You're a New Yorker. You've you've lived on the East Coast your whole life, other than when you were doing MASH for 11 years and commuting back and forth. But how did Noah approach you to be in the film? And you play one of uh, Adam Driver's lawyers.
1: Right. I don't remember how I got approached. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry I can't answer that in the thrilling way. Yeah. I, I all I remember is I read the script, I guess sent to me by my uh, agent, and uh, I loved it, and I and I wanted to be in it because it, was, it represented such good writing, mm-hmm. and I didn't know I was getting a bonus along with that. The the, pre, the company of Noah Baumbach, who's such a wonderful director, a wonderful mm-hmm. person to work with, and these actors who were brilliant. And fun to be with.
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk. You were with Adam Driver. Uh, most of your scenes were with him, and he's one of the greats. He's on his way, I believe, into being one of the really truly greats. He's still young, right, but right. I think so... he's already.
1: He's certainly in his generation. Mm-hmm. He's one of the best, if not the best, and he's going to be one of those memorable stars that we all take for granted. You know, Humphrey Bogart and people who are who are. Powerful screen presences, but he's an amazing actor to wherever you put him on the screen or on the stage. He uh, he was in the play "Burn This" on Broadway, mm-hmm. and I saw him in that the same week I saw him in "Marriage Story." Mm-hmm. They're two polar opposites in, in terms of the characters he played, but he was so invested in the character in each case. As you watched it, you you thought to yourself. Well, of course, he's just playing himself. He's not—he's mm-hmm. not trying to be somebody else. But he can be somebody else without appearing to try.
0: Well, I know Noah likes to rehearse a lot. That's part of his process, right? Yeah. How was that rehearsing with Adam?
1: Well, it was—it was—you know—the pleasure of rehearsing with him and the pleasure of playing on on camera with him was the same as the pleasure of sitting with him and getting to know him and becoming friends. He's so direct and so honest. And without an agenda. And he's not trying to steal the scene. And he's not trying to steal the conversation in person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, a, he's a wonderful guy. And Scarlett gives such an amazing performance. I only had one or two scenes with her. But when I see what she was able to do, I actually, this was, this was an extraordinary thing. Toward the end of the movie, mm-hmm. when they've already made the adjustment to live apart, he comes back. And he tells her something that he probably should have said a year ago. And she looks at him. There's no dialogue, but you can read her mind. I mean, I I felt I knew exactly what she was thinking. That's a, that's a great performance. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel I talked to her a little bit about this. Her two scenes where there's no dialogue and that one you're referring to at the end of the movie is just that affected me almost more than anything. Yeah, it it, it is very devastating. affecting. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, and maybe as as a woman I was relating more on the scarlet side. I was identifying that way, but just that oh, like he, that feeling in in a relationship which Noah did so well. Like there's certain things that you'll do anything for your child and maybe you won't do anything for your spouse, but the way he wove that all together was incredible.
1: You yeah. really, I think you, I'm curious to know what how you feel about it. I get the impression that most of the people in the audience are going to be rooting for both of them, even though the sides are clearly drawn, and they're drawn more and more pronouncedly as the divorce gets uglier, mm-hmm. as the lawyers get more tenacious mm-hmm. and ruthless. Mm-hmm. They're drawn into a fight that they didn't intend in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the lawyers are fighting sort of dirty on both sides. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm rooting for both of them to, to survive, to, to find something that they can – some way out of it that doesn't destroy them. And that doesn't destroy the kid.
0: Right. I feel that I would agree with you. I feel like I. that's pretty much the genius of the film is that y- – the way noah equally balanced the characters mm. and you as an audience member you tend to go with who you're watching right and yes. he was there's a beautiful fluidity between the two and you are you're rooting you're rooting for them I think, at least I was by the end. It was just heartbreaking. But I'm an eternal optimist. So I keep thinking, you know, where where are they now? What's, <laughs> what's going on with Charlie and Nicole? I and think what, they I,
1: move on to other lives, but yeah. they maintain a relationship. It's a different kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And I run into people all the time who have managed to do that. It's not – I think we're trained to think if you don't – if you don't get back together, there's a failure. Mm-hmm. The success is in learning how to live with somebody, even at a distance. If you can't live up close, at least live at a distance mm-hmm. like, with civility.
0: Did you ever contemplate divorce in your six-decade marriage? No,
1: I'm sure my wife contemplated murder. But <laughs> <laughs>
0: But that couldn't have been easy. I mean, I I think about there's so much sacrifice that goes into a relationship with an actor and obviously for you as well a writer, a director, you have all these other passions, science, you have a whole you know school named after you at, at Stony Brook. Like you are filled with ideas and energy, and it seems like the compulsion to actually uh, lean into all of them. And I imagine being in that, for your wife, or your kids, you made a lot of, they made some sacrifices and you made a lot of sacrifices. I mean, just even flying back and forth for 11 years, every weekend, I read somewhere that you flew back three times in one week while you're doing MASH. I
1: did, but I get a little too much credit for that because... We were together in California for the summer months. And for about four months after that, I would fly back every weekend. Mm-hmm. But that only took place for seven or eight years because then the kids went to college. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't every week for seven or 11. We were on the air for 11 years. Mm-hmm. but
0: Still a long time. Yeah,
1: it is. And I was—I had a permanent buzz on from jet lag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I would imagine, and even then, traveling was more of a big deal. Now it feels like it's a—you've got lounges, you know. It feels like it runs a lot better than it must have been running at that time.
1: And we didn't have any money in the beginning, and I was, uh, you know, cramped into mm-hmm. economy class, where if I was lucky, I could stretch out on two seats. Mm-hmm. You know? But that was that. I didn't I didn't think of it as a sacrifice, and I don't think I don't get the impression Arlene thinks of her end of the work we do in our marriage is a sacrifice. It's what you do to make it work. Mm -hmm. And I do do a lot of stuff. There are many things that interest me and I get, I'm able to do them because of her encouragement. Mm -hmm. And I, and that's literally true. When I leave the house to go do something, to perform someplace or give a talk or have a difficult meeting, the last thing I hear as I go out the door is Arlene saying, you're going to be great. (laughs) And it, it as many hundreds of times as I've heard it, it does give me confidence it makes me feel good and I'd say the same thing to her and she's because she 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 has a, a professional life of her own, so she has things to do while I'm doing my stuff that matter a lot to both of
0: us-hmm was there any point in your success where you thought okay i've I've made it now I can you know put my take my foot off the gas like this is it I've achieved I've gotten awards I have more money than I know what to do with I've you know reached a certain level and now I can just sit back and and bask in it.
1: what would i do what would i <laughs> what, what would the basking involve? Basking sounds like a like a self immolation i <laughs> i don't, I'm really not interested in basking hmm uh I'm very curious and I and I there's a lot I want to know I want a lot I want to learn and I found a way to be helpful to other people. You talked about this the older center for communicating science at Stony Brook University. Mm-hmm. this is our 10th anniversary we've trained over 15,000 scientists and physicians to communicate better. Mm-hmm. To explain their work and as far as the researchers are concerned so that they can the public can understand it funders can understand it enough to fund it the government can understand what they're being asked for money for and physicians can talk to their patients in a way that helps the patients heal better because mm-hmm. studies have shown that if the physician speaks with empathy to a patient the patient is more likely to take the the, the doctor's advice take the medication mm-hmm. do the exercise that kind of thing so by helping them communicate better, I am making a contribution that I didn't know 50 years ago I had it in me to do. But it all came out of the work that began when I was two years old, watching my father from the wings acting and watching burlesque comics perform. I was learning, I was really learning the art of relating. And now, I'm in a movie about relating. Mm-hmm. I have a podcast about relating. Mm-hmm. And we teach relating to scientists and physicians. Mm-hmm. I had no idea it was all going to blossom into that.
0: I know. It's, it's, it does look like a deliberate arc, <laughs> but it wasn't at it all. It was
1: an improvisation. And improvisation. Impro- improvising is the only acting technique I ever studied. And I only did that for about six months. But it was a pure kind of improvising. It wasn't comedy improvising. And that changes you as an actor and it changes you as a person as well. And that's how I've run my life, like an improvisation. And if if my life looks, as you say, like a, a deliberate arc, a lot of improvisations look like they're deliberate too. But it's because one thing really does lead to another in a meaningful way if you swim with the flow.
0: Mm-hmm. And by improvisation, you're not talking about, obviously, the comedy of Groundlings or Second City no. or any of that. You're talking about really being present and listening.
1: Right. And you can, after you, do, after you do this kind of improvising for a while, this was invented by Viola Spolin a long time ago, like about 80 years ago. And if you do it enough, you can improvise a whole play a one-act play that has a theme and is has insight and can also be funny. And it looks like somebody wrote it, but it's happening moment by moment.
0: Did you do any improvising with Noah and Adam during rehearsals?
1: No. Uh, I think Noah wants, and and rightly so, he wants the air of improvisation. I think he wants the spontaneity of improvisation. And he gets it, but he wants the lines he's slaved over feverishly to be spoken, and and you can do both if people are sensitive to one another and toss the ball back and forth. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, that's the only way you're going to get a spontaneous performance.
0: And your character is this great. I mean, you've <laughs> you've been a well-seasoned lawyer with ups and downs. You've been you had your kind oak. of a
1: crappy office.
0: The office, to say the least. It's like, is it a house? And the and the secretary kind of sits, or, or the assistant sits out front because you're in a kitchen going back and forth. It's just this great motion. And I feel like throughout the film, Noah gets the most kind of athletic performances out of these actors, because there's so much moving, that yeah. uh, moving and talking and whatnot. But you're lying to Adam. I think it's like you remind me of me in my second divorce. <laughs> But also your Parkinson's is you know you've talked about this and it's on full display in this character.
1: Well, sometimes I don't know when I'm shaking. So I, I saw myself in an interview. I came back from an interview today. And I said, Darlene, it's amazing. I must be getting better. I didn't shake at all. And I looked at the video. And I, I didn't realize I was shaking. But that you know, as long as as long as it doesn't interfere with the the audience. Focus on the scene and the character. It's just an attribute. If I had a limp, mm-hmm. or if I if I were in a wheelchair, like uh, Barrymore, Lionel Barrymore acted for fifteen or twenty years in a wheelchair, and all his characters were wheelchair bound, and nobody, you know, nobody thought twice about it. Mm-hmm. Say, "Right, he's acting from a chair. Fine." Mm-hmm. So, if it, but, but I'm I'm doing uh, playing a Ray Donovan psychiatrist on Ray Donovan. And when they realized I had Parkinson's, they said, "Do you mind if we write that into the script? Because his brother has Parkinson's, and it would be good to play scenes that uh, involve both characters." So I thought about it for a while, and they said, "Okay, as long as you, yeah, f- fine." But then, now I'm doing scenes where the character I'm playing has a worse tremor than I have, and I have to fake it. <laughs> <laughs> And Lee F. Schreiber, who plays Ray Donovan, said to me, because his brother is played by uh, Eddie Marson, and he said, you know, I've been watching you. I think Eddie is better at it than you. <laughs> he doesn't have Parkinson."
0: <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, well, obviously, we've, through Michael J. Fox, who got it at early, at such a young age. I know. He's we've...
1: really had a struggle with it. Mm-hmm. But he is so positive. And has such a good sense of humor. He's writing a book about, or at the time he was writing a book about a positive attitude. Mm -hmm. He was stuck and he he couldn't, he had a block and he couldn't keep keep the process going. And he complained to his wife, I'm never going to finish my book about positivity. (laughs) (laughs) But he was on the podcast, Mm -hmm. on my podcast, Clear and Vivid. And it is uh, really remarkable because... He is he's such an admirable person and, and was was able with me to trade uh, trade stories, trade techniques. my my condition is nowhere near his, uh, and if I'm lucky, I can hold it off for a long time. But we still share um, tasks that we have to find a way to accomplish, like buttoning your shirt in less mm-hmm. than 10 minutes, right tying your shoes, that kind of thing. And he's so good-natured about it. And he said this wonderful thing. He says, I don't think about that it took me five minutes to tie my shoes. I think about, I got my shoes tied. Yeah. You know, And that I think that is positive. Really positive.
0: You've played a lot of senators <laughs> in your career. Uh, now, a lot of po- politicians, I should say.
1: A couple of presidents.
0: A couple of presidents, uh, some better than others, and Obviously, in the movie you wrote, the seduction of Joe Tynan. I want to know: Have you ever been tempted to get into politics at no. any point?
1: I no, I was never tempted to get into politics. I mean, I never felt the temptation. I would, I was tempted by other people once or twice. Uh, people from a political club in New Jersey came to the mash set and said, we'd like you to run for senator, U.S. senator from New Jersey. I said, why why would I do that? I'm an actor. I want to be an actor. I'm an artist. I'm not a politician. And anyway, I said, I don't know how to do it. I'm not a professional politician. I I wouldn't know what to do. They said, yeah, but we could get you elected. So this is how, this is who gets elected, I guess. (laughs) People who uh, sometimes don't know what they're doing. But I, I knew what I wanted out of life. I, I, it didn't seem to me to be uh, an attractive idea because mm-hmm. I, I felt I could make a contribution, and I did want to make a contribution. I care a lot about our lives as a culture, as a nation, but I want to be he- really helpful. I don't want to be helpful. I don't want to do things that I think are helpful but aren't really. I, I want to test it out and see if it's really what's needed and if I can come up with it. And I just followed the path that I was on. And who knew I'd wind up helping in a much bigger way. I mean, mm-hmm. we we trained scientists in government agencies and mm-hmm. other countries all across the United States. And it's very, that really is satisfying. Mm-hmm. I really think I'm making a contribution. And I still get to work. In my chosen field, as an actor and as a writer,
0: I want to talk a little bit about the writing because it's so interesting to me that we know you mostly as an actor first and foremost, right uh, you' so prolific, and yet you were writing the whole time i mean i I looked at the mash. the the IMDb page of MASH and you were basically credited as writing from season one. And then you went on to obviously write many, many more and direct. And obviously the final episode, which I think still stands as the most watched episode ever in the history of anything. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Stadiums were filled with people. I I was in Toronto.
1: I was just in Toronto. Uh And somebody told me he watched the final episode in a basketball stadium with 20,000 people. Is that amazing? Yeah, and I'm I, not
0: surprised. I
1: never heard that before.
0: I think that people don't realize how huge that show was, and also I'm not surprised they didn't. They wanted you to run for senator because Hawkeye Pierce, you was the most popular character. Your fame was huge at that time.
1: Well, it did. It did get. It. It was a shock when I got so well known so so quickly. I didn't know how to handle it and I had seen my father become famous and it wasn't he was a very well-known movie star in the 40s and people people's reaction maybe more so then than now because now they 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 grab a, a, a picture of you sometimes without asking but then they wouldn't only ask for an autograph one time we were on Hollywood Boulevard and a kid ran up and punched him in the back and none of us understood it, but it was the discomfort that some f- people feel for when the, in the presence of a famous person, people get disoriented. Mm-hmm. We all do. We all have somebody who makes us go a little gaga. Mm-hmm. It's more—it's more, it's more a, a scientist with me than mm-hmm. a, than a movie star or a great musician, because I—I. But one time when I met Lee Vullman... In the parking lot of a Chinese restaurant, I was so taken with her because she had been my heartthrob for for years, you know, on the screen. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even hear what she was saying. And, uh, <laughs> I I was I was completely disoriented. And then after little by little, I began to realize I was talking to an actual person. <laughs>
0: What were some of the pitfalls that you made when you became famous? I mean, did you have any missteps, anything that you learned from about dealing with that kind of success and attention? I, I had
1: to learn I had to learn that they were not talking about me. They were talking about a comic book character that represented me. I, there was an avatar called Alan Alda and he didn't live the life I led. He didn't have the vulnerabilities that I had or the sensibilities. It was who they thought I was. I became a stereotype, became Mr. Nice Guy, mm-hmm. because I was so active as a feminist and working so hard to try to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed, which would have put women in the Constitution for the first time. I, I actually got the stereotype of being a, a wimp, because if you're you know, if you if you don't if you're a man and you don't represent the the aggressive male stereotype, then you must be a wimp. Mm-hmm. That's that that idea. I think has changed to a great extent now. Mm-hmm. Do you get that impression?
0: Yeah, I do. Oh, for sure. But I think. In I mean, the you see men carrying
1: babies and pushing yeah, baby. Yeah, well, cap-
0: I think the success of what was that movie? Three men and a baby. It was like such a shock. Men yeah. taking care of babies. Now I think that, uh, yeah, we we've definitely evolved.
1: So we didn't get the that. equal rights amendment passed, but the culture did develop a different way of thinking. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. So, for you as an artist, do you enjoy the writing and the directing and the acting with equal measure?
1: Yeah, but I'm glad I don't try to do all three at once at the same time anymore. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I, for me, I think it diminished a little bit of what I could contribute in each of the areas. But when you write something, you it's a, it's goes on film. You kind of do want to direct it, if you if if you know how and if they'll let you, because I it might have been um, I forget who Horse Wells might have been the one who said. There are three movies, the one you write, the one you shoot, and the one you edit. And when you write it, you don't know how those other two are going to affect it. And when you shoot it, you don't know how the editing is going to affect it, even though you might be cutting it in your head. And Noah is is very astute at that.
0: What was it like uh, being directed by him? I mean, are there any signature traits that he has that are clearly identifiable as like, oh, that is a NOah bomb that I'm working with Noah Baubach.
1: He has utter respect for the other person. You don't see him calculating how to phrase it to make you do something you're not interested in doing or wouldn't wouldn't be helpful to you. He doesn't say unhelpful things. He in a way he gives you the impression he's discovering it with you. and that's exciting. And if you come up with something that seems to go in a direction he didn't expect, he encourages that and helps you try other ideas that are maybe more in line with what he uh, envisioned when he when he wrote it. And that takes a lot of tries, so he has a reputation for doing a lot of takes. But I'm from the stage, and I like long runs because the more I do it, the better I get. Mm-hmm. So I... I was disappointed when I heard he did 20 takes because I thought that we needed more.
0: <laughs> well, Adam, when I talked to Adam, he had said that, oh, they, they really indulge their bad habits. Like they could do 50 takes of one thing and be like, do we get it? Are you sure we've got it? Should we do one more?
1: <laughs> yeah. it's If you have the time, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to go over schedule and over budget just playing games. But if you smell that you're after something that might be really unusual and good, then you should go for it.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there any actors or directors that you would love to work with again that, I mean, you've worked with so many talented people?
1: I know. and, And they each have their own signature, as you pointed out. I'd love to work with Noah some more. I'd love to work more with Scorsese and... Well, look at the people I've worked I know with.
0: Scorsese. You got a that was aviator, and you got an Oscar nomination yeah, for that, wasn't that performance. Nice? Another senator.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I play people who wear suits because mm-hmm. I don't look so good in a loincloth.
0: <laughs> how how is Scorsese? How is it to be directed by him and to be on his sets? It's
1: wonderful. He's very. Positive, very encouraging. After a take, he'll come over and say, "That was great. I loved that. I loved it. just terrific, the way you did that. That thing. You might, you, know, you might go a little bit more in this other direction, but only if you feel like it. Just try it. Give it a little try. Say, oh, let's go again." And by the time he walks away, you realize he hated what you did, <laughs> but you feel so good about it
0: <laughs> that you're ready to do it again and again. Oh,
1: sure, way. sure. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be with him. He's a he's a he's a very warm person. It's very nice. Mm-hmm. and spielberg was wonderful and he, he 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 knows so much about filmmaking and both of them both both he and and marty scorsese they both are walking encyclopedias of film and they love to talk about film so it's really fun you you you're getting a you're not only having the fun of acting in one of their movies you're getting a course in film history mhm it's great,
0: yeah. It's an, it. I love like yourself. They're so prolific, well into their careers. You know, no one. It's it's almost like I feel like with Scorsese and actually with Spielberg too. They're more energized the older they get, almost.
1: Well, it's great when you take somebody like either one of them with a who is a fountain of talent and has so much experience. The experience combined with a talent and ability. And I think talent and ability are two different things. Talent is what you come in with. Ability is what you make of it. And the experience of doing that over and over again has to deepen your understanding of how to do it. So when they're in their 90s, if they're still making movies, they're going to make profoundly interesting movies because they'll have they'll have the tools that they don't have now and that nobody else will have at that point. Mm-hmm. I think we still undervalue age. It's important to have the recklessness of youth and the innovation, the love of innovation, the drive toward innovation that youth has. But I think we've evolved to have grannies for a reason, because that's where the wisdom and the, the foot on the brakes comes in sometimes. And everybody has, to, has a different talent, you know? Mm-hmm. Everybody has a different way to fill their role in, in the culture. It's very interesting to me, because I, I, when I was young, I was a, I, I considered myself an activist, and I wouldn't apply that term to myself now. But but it seemed to me important to to work overtly on the problems, to be part of the fight. I think I'm less interested in the fight now than I am in resolving fights, resolving tensions between people we're in a terrible state of mm-hmm. of falling apart as a as a culture we don't we don't trust one another
0: do you think it's worse than it's ever been i know uh, and i ask a lot of older people that have lived through you know the 60s and the 70s and and all these kind of politically divisive times in american culture do you feel now that in 2019 we're were worse than it was in 1968?
1: It's hard to judge. I did live through the The, the last time I can remember when things were about as bad as this what was during the Vietnam War. But there were some ways that was worse, and there were some ways this was worse. This is worse. When those students were shot by the, when, I would guess, by the National Guard, mm-hmm. that was frightening because we had never had anything like that at least not not in memory and and there probably were fights at the thanksgiving table but i don't know if families came apart the way they come apart now so there, there are aspects in both areas that are both both times that are very hard to live with but i hope we can come out of this and get 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 to be friends and love each other again
0: I do think that's one of the most powerful things about art. And it's it's not lost on me that you're in the communicating through and having scientists and communication because actors are the best communicators. And it's whether it's uh, obvious or subliminal or even the messages that you guys were working on when you were shooting uh, MASH about it was, takes place during the Korean War. There's all kinds of conversations and controversies that can kind of get worked out through a series or worked out through film and even in marriage story you see this i mean it's ironic that you're playing the lawyer that's been divorced four times but yet somehow you're the reason you're the most reasonable voice <laughs> for a large portion portion of the film
1: not that that helps.
0: Yeah, not that it helps. Exactly. <laughs> Ego that, gets the best that, of everybody. Yeah,
1: that's one of the things about the movie that could make you lose hope. But they, in spite of that, they find a way to adjust to what's happened to them. And to, it, it's, it often boils down to me to empathy, to being willing to to just have some understanding of what the other person is going through. You can't know for sure. But when you said that actors, you said something like this a minute ago, that actors make a contribution to Mm -hmm. the society. For me, the way we do it is that we give the audience a chance to empathize with people they might not otherwise even have come across. Even if it's bad guys or people who are suffering because they find themselves in an untenable situation, to feel for them to feel with them, not necessarily to agree with them. Doesn't, empathy doesn't mean you agree with them or you want them to do well or you, you have compassion for them. It just means that you, the way I look at it, it just means that you understand their point of view. You understand what made them, in a way, what they are. If you, if you, if you understand that, you have an opportunity to work with them
0: What advice would you have for this generation coming up in this kind of political environment and toxicity and polarization? I mean, what would you say to to young people listening?
1: I really think I've found that if you listen to the other person, let the other person know that you are listening, and you don't have to indicate that you agree, but you just have to let them know they're being heard, there's a greater chance... There's some some chance, maybe it's even a small chance, that they'll listen to you. The tone, the choice of words, the very attitude you have, if it's not deeply and truly respectful, they're going to sense it and they're going to resist you. Mm -hmm. And maybe you'll find that there's something in what they're saying, some little thing that really is valuable. I have this radical way of talking to people. Where I feel I'm not really listening unless I'm willing to be changed by them in some way. Just willing to be. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I always am.
0: Have you evolved into this person that you are right now in front of me? Or is this something that you had from a very young age, from your kind of unconventional upbringing with vaudeville and having that theater family? I,
1: uh, I, I grew into this. I I was thinking this morning about some of the... Every once in a while, it comes back to me how I've done quite the opposite of what I was just saying with somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think, boy, what what was going on in my head? Why did I need to be superior to that person? Because it didn't work. I mean, the the reason I remember it is because the person's reaction was really not good.
0: Mm -hmm. I would imagine that, especially working in... Hollywood and in movies and television, there's always a lot of personalities and a lot of opinions and a lot of complicated individuals.
1: So how do you handle somebody? This is one of the seven questions I ask at the end of my show. All right. How do you handle somebody? How do you tell somebody they have their facts wrong?
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I agree with you. You have to listen to what they're saying. And then you have to basically present that, well, I found this was the case and that was the case, which is, <laughs> you know, you present your side to it. But a lot a lot of times I find, and I used to joke about this, certainly in, in my time at Vanity Fair and in life, there was that line in in sea biscuit the the movie about the book was first a book, obviously, Laura Hildebrand wrote that great book about the the horse Sea Biscuit and War Admiral and whatnot. It became a movie and I remember this line about how Seabiscuit was this thoroughbred, very high strong, and they had to bring in pumpkin, this other kind of workhorse to settle biscuit down. So I often feel like I'm playing the role of pumpkin. <laughs> I'm settling down. You know, I come in and I'm like absorb all the information and absorb everyone's like kind of feeling and then process it and, and try to come up with some kind of solution to either get on with the day or figure out what needs to get accomplished and why we all came there to begin with.
1: That sounds nice. That's a, I never heard the answer to that question. we've done about 70 interviews. I never heard anybody say they well, the way I handle it is I'm pumpkin.
0: <laughs> I'm pumpkin, you know it's true. <laughs> it's the clearest way I could answer that question. That's good. Well, thank you and I have to say that being spending this time with Alan Alda right in front of me has been amazing what you've done with your life not even career just life is so inspirational to me and the fact that you're able to excel in all these different areas i have great admiration for you and i'm well, really happy very kind. that i got were. to sit with you and <laughs> On another note, you're great in the movie. <laughs> you're <laughs> fabulous in Marriage uh, Story.
1: I love the movie. I'm I'm so proud to be in it. it makes makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. And I really have enjoyed talking with you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. And I don't disagree with anything you said about me as a person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. Marriage Story is in theaters and streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.